Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be teaching out of the book of Genesis. All right. Well, let's dive into the word here tonight. If you would uh, just agree with me in prayer. Father, we pause here now as we look to your word, as we open your word, Lord, we recognize it is the word of God. It is inspired. Uh, It is your word, which you exalt above your own name. Help us, Lord, to treasure it here this evening uh, to uh, respect your word and, uh, Lord, to receive it, to apply it to our lives. Bless us in this time, Lord. Lead us in this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're picking up here tonight in Genesis chapter 15. And what we see here as we come into this chapter, really what the emphasis is, is God's covenant with Abram. Okay, remember Abram is, he's still Abram at this point. God has not yet changed his name to Abraham. His wife's name is still Sarai, not Sarah. That will come a little bit later. And so uh, even though Abram is from our standard today, he's advanced in age. He's still pretty, pretty young, relatively speaking. It's still kind of early on in his life. God has not yet fulfilled his promise to Abram of giving him an heir, and that's part of what we're going to consider here tonight. Uh, Many things have been happening in Abram's life. Uh, Most recently was, uh, I guess not most recently, but one of the big events in, in Abram's past here, really in the last decade, was his trip to Egypt. That wasn't a good trip. It wasn't a trip that God wanted him to make. In many respects, it served as a picture of Abram going back to the world. The e- Egypt often a picture of the world in our lives. And so as Abram goes down to Egypt, as he goes down to the world, we see some things happen in Abram's life where he begins to take matters into his own hands. It's not going to be the last time that he does that. In fact, not that long after what we'll study here tonight, Abram will take things into his own hands again. It's a constant pattern. We see it in our own lives. God moves. God's faithful. God blesses. God works in our lives. And we have these experiences, these, these spiritual victories, if you will. And sometimes it's not long, sadly, after that, that we kind of get distracted, that we get lazy, that we get discouraged, that we start to, to, to do things that are no longer pleasing to the Lord. And we see a little bit of this pattern in Abram's life. But Abram learns his lesson in Egypt to a degree. He leaves Egypt a different man. He leaves Egypt a more spiritual man, truly. So though Abram will continue to make some mistakes, I think that Abram grows a lot in his time in Egypt. And as he makes his way out of Egypt, he does exactly what anyone should do, any Christian should do when we find ourselves far from God. He returns. He goes back to the beginning. He goes back to that place when he was in a healthy relationship with the Lord. He goes back to uh, in, in the case of Abram, he goes to the altar at Bethel and he worships God and he gets his life right. He repents and he turns back to the Lord. And so it seems then that Abram settles into the land for a time. If you recall, Abram and Lot, they sort of part ways. Lot's still got a lot of the world left in him. He's still got a lot of Egypt left in him. And so Lot makes his way towards what he deems as green pastures. Uh, no doubt they were lush at the time, but Lot didn't seem to pay attention to the fact that those beautiful pastures were right next to Sodom. And so he pitches his tent towards Sodom. And of course, we know it's not long before he's uh, not just pitched his tent in the direction of Sodom, but he's really a member of the community there. And so the uh, spiritual slide, if you will, for Lot is quite significant. And he gets caught up in uh, some affairs of the land. In fact, four kings, a confederation of kings, come against the land. And as they continue to, in their conquest, take over different areas and fight in various battles, Lot gets caught up in that and he gets carried away. And uh, Abram, well, Though he's remained quiet throughout this time, no doubt trying to just keep peace and, and keep to himself, when he finds or when he hears word that uh, his nephew Lot, who he very much considers a brother, uh, has been taken, uh, he gets his men together and he goes out on what some might consider an impossible uh, mission and he goes to get Lot back. 
And uh, he's victorious in doing so. And that's really what we see in chapter 14, is that Lot goes to battle. Uh, it's a surprise battle. It's, it's sort of an undercover black ops sort of thing that Lot does, or excuse me, Abram does with his, with his men, just a, just a few hundred men. And they uh, mount a surprise attack, and they get Lot and all the possessions and all the people back. They're victorious, and it's pretty incredible. And so they're making their way back to their home, and it's along the way that the king of Sodom finds out and he comes to meet Abram and he suggests to Abram that if Abram would just give him uh, all of the people that he has brought back uh, that he'll give him all of the possessions that he could really desire but it's at this same time that an interesting king a a very unknown king uh, comes whose name is Melchizedek Uh, king of righteousness from a place called Salem or otherwise known as peace. And he comes to Abram. And uh, we know that that is what we would call a pre-incarnate form of Jesus, a theophany. Uh, This is Jesus before before Jesus is incarnate in the flesh. And he comes and he meets Abram and he reminds Abram of who he is. He reminds Abram of what he's called to. He reminds Abram of some of the promises. If you look at chapter 14 and verses 19 and 20, Melchizedek says this, And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram here recognizing that indeed uh, this was a man of God, he worships him and gives him a tithe of all. And it's in this moment that the king of Sodom, verse 21, said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said this to the king of Sodom, I've raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich. So in this very much victorious moment, this spiritual victory that comes after uh, a physical victory, Abram says, listen, I worship God. I know who I am. I know what I'm called to. I know what I'm promised. And I'm not going to have anything to do with you or the world. And he's a wonderful picture for us in this moment of what we as Christians should also be to say, no way. I've raised my hand to the God Most High. I go to church. I worship God. I have brothers and sisters in Christ. I have treasures that you know nothing of, treasures that are beyond this world. I don't need anything that this world has to offer. I don't want to take anything from this world, lest this world suggest that it has me or that it made me. Right, And so this is a wonderful moment here for Abram. But as I've already alluded to, and as is often the case for us, it's after these wonderful spiritual highs that oftentimes we find ourselves in a bit of a low. And that's what we come into here at the beginning of chapter 15. In verse 1 it says this, After these things. And so what are these things? It's, it's what I've just described to you here. Uh, it's saying after all of these events... The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Now this is interesting because if we we look at chapter 14, you would really think, my goodness, what does Abram have to be afraid of? I mean, he just got a a little more than 300 men, pulled them together, trained them up, went out on a secret mission, overcame a confederation of kings that had been successful in in, in routing the different villages uh, in that area for several years. He was victorious over them. He gets Lot back. He gets the possessions back. He gets the people back. And so not only is he victorious there in battle, but then he encounters great temptation from the world, from the king of Sodom, and there too. He says, no way. He says, I worship God. And so he's got a spiritual victory. And then all of a sudden, we find that here he's, he's afraid. Who's he afraid of? What in the world? It seems like Abraham would say, no, I'm, 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 very, I'm victorious. I'm confident. I'm not afraid of anything. But we see here that God says the word of the Lord comes and says, don't be afraid. 
And reminds him, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. And so what we must ask ourselves is, why would Abram be afraid in this moment? And I think if we, if we really consider it, we can come up with some ideas. Because as much as, yes, Abram was victorious in battle over these kings, he's probably now thinking as he's made his way back, and the adrenaline wore off a little bit, probably thinking, oh no, what did I do? Right? I mean, if this was a surprise attack, it happened at night, and, and he, he maybe is starting to think, we may have just gotten lucky. These guys are probably really mad now, and they all know that I did it. They're probably going to come for me, and they're, and they're going to come with a vengeance. Right? So he's thinking, hey, I, did, I, I accomplished this, but now I've made some enemies. Okay? So, so that could be one thing. Maybe also, as, as time goes on, he's thinking, boy, the, the, the king of Sodom, he offered me a lot. I just, turned down, I just turned down a pretty lucrative business deal. Maybe that was foolish. Maybe I shouldn't have done that. You see, if we think about these things, we can probably easily start to go, oh, okay, I, I can remember times in my own life when I was on this high, I had this, this spiritual encounter. I had this, this, this victory. I, uh, you know, I, I did something at work. I stood my ground. Uh, all these different scenarios can maybe come up that are similar in your own lives. And you can think, boy, yeah, you're here. And then all of a sudden, you're here. Because if, if Abram had learned anything at this point in the great leaps of faith that he had taken in following after God is that trouble typically followed after great spiritual victories. This was happening consistently in his life. And chances are it happens in your own life as well. This is why we have these Christianese phrases, right? Like uh, you know, the mountaintop experience followed by the valley, right? Are you in the valley right now? We say these things a lot, but we understand it because we know, man, I was here and I was worshiping the Lord and everything was great. Now I just feel like I'm way down here because this often follows. And so then the word of the Lord comes to Abram as gracious as God is and reminds Abram, he says, listen, don't be afraid. The same way God has said throughout history, don't be afraid to men and women over and over and over again. Don't be afraid. Why does God say don't be afraid? Because he's with you. Because he's with you. He reminds us that, that I have you. You're okay. I'm keeping you. I'm protecting you. This is what he tells Abram. I am your shield. And so Abram here, as he's thinking about a couple of different things. One, as he's thinking about, oh, I made some enemies and they're going to come after me now. God says, don't be afraid. I'm your shield. Okay? That's why I think we, we can have an idea or know what Abram is, is fearing here. Because the first thing that God says is, I'm your shield. Just like King David in Psalm 3, verse 3. But you, O Lord, are what? A shield about me. Declaring, God, you have me. You are protecting me. So that's the first thing that Abram's afraid of. I've got some enemies now. And God says, I'm your shield. I will protect you. And then the second thing, God says, I'm your exceedingly great reward. And so the other thing that Abram's thinking about, man, I just turned down a lot of worldly goods. God says, I'm your reward, right? Do you know what? <laughs> the English language is a difficult language. Many of you know this, right? And especially if you learned how to teach it. Uh, and when we look at other languages, I find myself sometimes frustrated because oftentimes we consider, say, for example, our word love. We've considered this a lot, right? And we know that in the Greek, there are many words for love that give us insight into what, what type of love are you talking about? Is it agape love? It's unconditional love? Is it phileo love? It's brotherly love? Is it eros love? It's, it's sort of that, uh, I've fallen in love. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's more of a, a physical love. It's, it, it, there's, there's different types so that we can have an understanding of what exactly are you talking about. But in our culture, it's just love. And so as I've often said, and some of you may remember, I love my wife and I love burritos too. <laughs> Clearly, the two are not equal, Right? <laughs> It is my wife who is far above the burrito. But when you hear me say I love it, we understand and it's sort of silly. All that to say sometimes you look at the original language and you go, whoa, it tells me so much more when I really consider it. And the Hebrew here, when God says I'm your exceedingly great reward, that's the best way that we have, I suppose, to really say it. But it would be even better if, if really if we looked at this Hebrew here and to say what God is saying to Abraham here is I am your super abundant, very exceedingly much reward. 
God's trying to say, I am so much better than anything that that king could offer you. We have, uh, God has many names in Scripture. One of the names that he has is El Shaddai. You know what El Shaddai means? Anybody? All sufficient. All sufficient. Now this, this name for God speaks also to who He is and the fact that He is all sustaining. There is nothing that He needs. There is nothing that He depends on. He is entirely all sufficient, all sustaining. And He says to Abram here, and I'm yours. I'm your reward. This is pretty incredible. And so in this moment of fear... This moment of fear over enemies, this moment of fear over loss of material possession, God says, I have got you, I'm your shield, and I'm your reward. Now, as we think about that, what we as Christians should then really consider is that that is who God is to be to us as well. And so in those moments when you're fearful, maybe for your own physical well-being, we trust that God is our shield. In those moments when maybe you're fearful of your own uh, material possessions, um, provision perhaps, or something that you've given up and you're, you're grieving the loss of that, to say, God, you're my reward. Now it's easy for us when we're sitting here tonight to say, yeah, that sounds good. Praise God. It's another thing when you're in the midst of it, right? And you know, I'm supposed to say that, but I don't really feel like it right now. And there's good news because Abram helps us to see we're, we're not alone in verse 2. But Abram says, so God, God shows up to Abram here. He gives a word of the Lord, comes to him in a vision, says, I'm your shield, I'm your reward. And what's Abram's response? Oh Lord God, verse 2, what will you give me? My goodness, Abram. No amen, no thank you, Lord. No, it's, oh, but what will you give me? I mean, here it's, it's, it's almost as if it just went in one ear and right out the other, and he just knows he's got God on the line. But God, give me something. And, and so truly, as I look at this, I think, okay, Lord God, what will you give me? It's a bit of a head scratcher. Abram, really? But isn't this like us? Isn't this like us in so many ways? Or maybe I should just say, isn't this like me? Because once again, be real, do you always feel like God is in fact your shield? Or do sometimes you go, well, that's what the Word says, but right now I feel very afraid, feel very vulnerable. Or that He is in fact your reward, right? When you, when you see somebody with, with some pretty cool stuff, you're thinking, man, I want that stuff. Oh, but God, you're, you're my reward. But then you see their stuff's still there and they're really enjoying their stuff, right? And you just say, well, my treasure's in heaven. Right, But when's that going to come? And what's it going to look like? And then all of a sudden you find yourself like Abram going, could you just give me something, God? Just a, li just a little? Just a little bit of something? Because again, it's what we, and, and here's the thing. We look at the, what God is saying to Abram, and I think we should say to ourselves, that's what I want to believe. That's what I know I'm supposed to say. It's what I want to believe, and sometimes I do a good job of believing it. See, the good news is, Christian, as your sanctification is happening, as you're growing in Christ, maybe you find yourself saying, I'm believing it more and more. That should be happening. I can say that right now in my life, I believe that God is my shield, and I believe that He is my great reward, more so than I did 20 years ago. I'm believing it more and more. I'm experiencing it more and more. Some of that, sadly, is because, is because I've taken some trips to Egypt, <laughs> Right? And I said, well, that wasn't that great. I guess I don't really need that or want that. And so, Lord, yes, you are my reward, okay? And so God uses these things in our life the same way that he's using these circumstances in Abram's life to teach him these things and to remind him. And praise God, he's gracious with us that he is willing to say, okay, I'm going to work with you here. And that's what he, that's what he does with Abram, as Abram says, I, I, need, I need a little more than that. And so Abram describes, and so what Abram starts to do then here is also familiar, at least to me. He begins to describe it to God. As we continue in verse 2, he says, you know, again, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? So Abram starts to explain this, and he says, the, in the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. In verse 3, then Abram said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one 
One born in my house is my heir. It's who he referred to there, Eliezer of Damascus. It was the custom at this time that if a man did not have an heir, that uh, the highest ranking servant in his household uh, would become his heir. And so Abram's looking at this situation. He's saying, see, I have, I've won. Just, just this guy. What of your promises, Lord? And here's what's interesting, I think, is that Abram does what we often do, and he pretends like God doesn't know. Right? I mean, think about this here. Well, God, look, do, 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 do you see? I'm childless. What about, what about your promise? You've given me no offspring. Thinking God's going to be like, oh, I forgot about that. Great point, Abram. You know, I got distracted, and I just, I just didn't get back to it. It just it fell off my to-do list. I'm sorry, you're right. You see, that's silly. But you see, sometimes we do that, don't we? But God, don't you see what's happening? We think somehow that it's lost on God what we may be going through. That we need to remind Him of it. Guys, please understand, and unfortunately we won't get there tonight, it's in Genesis 16, but it's a wonderful thing that Hagar declares in verse 13 of chapter 16, she calls on the name of the Lord who spoke to her, and she says this of God, you are the God who sees. You are the God who sees. For she said, have I also here seen him who sees me? And you know why she said you are the God who sees? Because she was running. She had no intention of looking for God. She was running away. She was fleeing. And all of a sudden, God shows up and says, here's what's going on. And she says, this is amazing. You're the God who sees. But you go back here, and Abram isn't considering that. And we don't either. Oftentimes, we think that God is just blind to what's going on in our lives. But He sees. He knows. Now, once again, I've said it a million times. I'll say it again. Praise God that He's gracious. Because if I were God... I'd be done with Abram at this point. I'd be like, okay, forget about this. I'll go to the next guy. But truth be told, if I were God, I'd be done with me too. <laughs> okay? I can't fault Abram here because I know it's just like me. And so God in his goodness, right? And God in his goodness continues to bear with Abram. But what we see here in, in Abram's situation is that far too often, if, if we're like Abram in any way, far too often we allow our circumstances, our fears, our doubts, our insecurities. These are all the things that Abram was dealing with here. He was dealing with the circumstances that he was facing in the moment. I don't have this. He was dealing with the fear. Lord, what if this happens? What if, what if this doesn't go this way? His doubts, Lord, you, you haven't done this yet. Are you, are you going to do this? His insecurities. Lord, Lord if I, all I have is this, it's just my servant. I don't even have any air, and so I'm a humiliation. All these things, right? And so, so oftentimes, far too often in our own lives, just like Abram, we allow all of those things to then become our reality. We convince ourselves of all those things and that that is the way that it is, and that's who we are. But what we need to do is trust what God says. It's been multiple times now that God has come to Abram and reminded him of who he is. And that's why I say, praise God that he's so gracious that he continues to come back and say, let me tell you who you are. And so we need to trust God. We need to trust what he says. We need to trust who he says we are. And we need to also trust that what he says he is going to do, he will do it. And so here's the wonderful thing then that God does. Is here in the midst of Abram's fear and his insecurity and his doubt. In verse 4, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir. So God, re God responds. God responds to Abram and says, No, this one will not be your heir. But one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. And in verse 5, Then he brought him outside. God says to him, Come outside. And so this shows us too that we have a personal God who meets us right where we are. And he calls Abram outside, outside and he says, now look, look toward heaven. He brings him out under the night sky. He says, look up, count the stars if you're able to number them. And he says to him, so shall your descendants be. Now science tells us that really there's no way to number the stars. You can't, you can't count them. 
And it's not that long after this that God is also going to say, as the, as the stars in the heavens, so are the grains of sand on the earth. He compares the two. There are things that we can go out on the beach, count them. Count up all the grains of sand on the beach. Right? Start. Start the process. You can't do it. You give up at 10 because you're just like, whatever. I can't even begin to do this. Same thing with the stars. It's tough for us, even in this area, though it's not that big of a city, it's tough to see the stars really clearly. You go up to the upstate. My parents live in the upstate, way out in the middle of nowhere. They happen to actually live in Salem. I haven't met a Melchizedek there yet, but they're in Salem, okay? And when we were up there over the holidays and we went outside and they have a telescope, and it was, I think that might have been the first time I've ever really looked through a telescope on my years. And I was like, this is so cool. And all these stars, and they're super bright. But it's like you can't even begin to number them. And this is God meeting Abram in his, in his, in his fear and his, in his insecurity and in his discouragement. He says, look, I'm promising you, you will have an heir. Far, far more than you could ever even imagine. And so as Abram's standing out there, as he's standing out there looking up at the heavens, uh, and, and this vision comes to him, and, and the word of the Lord comes to him, it says in verse 6, and he believed in the Lord. Now notice here it says that he doesn't believe in the promise, though he does, but foundationally he believes in the Lord. I believe you, God. I believe you. And he accounted, he being God, accounted it to him for righteousness. Here's this guy who's kind of blown it over and over again and is about to blow it again here shortly. And, and God says, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. God makes him righteous. And so here Abram believes, he believes in God. And, and, and so then because of that, it's accounted to him for righteousness. And then scripture testifies to that multiple times, just a couple of which are uh, in Romans in chapter 4, in verses 1 through, through 3, Paul writes, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He's saying it's, it's God who did this work, and it's Abram who believed in God, and it's God who counted him as righteous. Paul deals with this again uh, when he writes to the church in Galatia, in, in, in chapter 3, Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered in so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. You see here again, scripture testifies of the fact that in this moment, Abram comes to a place where he believes. He believes in God and that's what makes him righteous. And the encouragement to us here this evening also is that we are to believe. We're to trust him. Now here's, now, it, it, God here demonstrates further grace towards Abram that in verse 7, then he said to him, this is God, Abram says to, or excuse me, God says to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And so God, in effect, here reminds Abram, he, he sort of backs it up with his credentials. It's as if he asks him, do you remember who I am? And I think the same could be asked of us at times, Christian. Do you remember who God is? What is the, the, the challenge in your life? What is the trial in your life? What is the fear in your life? What is the doubt in your life? What are the circumstances in your life? What are the insecurities in your life? Perhaps God is saying to you, do you remember who I am? That I called you out? 
If you're a believer, you've been called out. He called you out of the world. His Spirit was with you, drawing you to repentance, convicting you, you responded, you surrendered, you like Abram said, I believe. And at that time, His Spirit then indwelt you and sealed you and put a promise on you and said, you are mine forever. Nothing is going to change that. There is nothing that you can do. I have you. No one will snatch you out of my hand. And so sometimes when we're in the midst of all these things and we find ourselves, and not in a condemning way, but just really struggling with all of these same things that Abram is struggling with, we need to stop and, 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 and hear God saying, do you remember who I am? I called you out. And I have you. But here's the wonderful thing for us. Is that again, hopefully you're identifying with Abram here a little bit because you're like, okay, yes, I've gone through these things, but and God's saying this to me, but I'm still sort of struggling a little bit and saying, Lord, Lord, would you help me? Would you show me? Right? And and it's okay. That should uh, that should show us that we have some permission, if you will, to be real with God, to be transparent with God, to say, sometimes, God, I know this is what I'm supposed to say, but I don't feel like saying it. Would you help me? And so even here, even now, after Abraham has said, yes, I believe, and even after God says, do you remember who I am, in effect, in verse 8, Abram says, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So he keeps going, right? He's not willing to be done at this point. He's saying, okay, but how do I know? That's a wonderful question. How do you know? Because you tonight might find yourself going, yeah, I've heard all the promises. I've said I believe, but I'm really struggling. And sometimes I'm in this spot where I'm going, how do I really know? How do I know? And so once again, even though we're in this spot here where I go, really, Abram, you might just want to quit while you're ahead. <laughs> he says, no, how, how will I know that I will inherit? How can I truly believe this promise? And so as we ourselves find ourselves probably encouraged here as we see Abram's struggle continue and we know that we're not alone, what we need to remember here is what we're seeing with Abram. It's no different, really, in my opinion, than the man who comes to Jesus on behalf of his son who was possessed. We see it in Mark in chapter 9 and verses 23 through 25. And Jesus says to him, if you, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And the man and the man just doesn't say it. The man cries out. He cries out with tears, mind you. This is a man who, who cares so deeply for his son and wants to believe, wants to believe it for his son. And he yells, he cries, he weeps. And he says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. He's saying, I want to believe. I believe that I believe. But Lord, I need some help. I need you to show up. And Christian, I think it gives us permission to do the same. I find that I oftentimes pray in this way, Lord, I believe, I trust, I know what your promises are, but I'm struggling. Help my unbelief. And I wonder, is this you tonight? Are you in a place where you want to believe what he says, you want to trust, but you're struggling? And I would say be honest with God. Be honest with him, just like this man in tears and whatever it may be, just to say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And look, when, when we're in this spot, I know that also we can sometimes wonder, man, is God just done with me? What a failure. My faith is clearly too weak. And we can begin to convince ourselves of everything that the enemy wants us to think. That, yep, God's just going to move on. He's done with you at this point. You've just gone too far. You've pushed it. But, but look what God does for Abram here. And, and truly, he, he does this then for us too. We are beneficiaries of this. Verse 9, So he, God, said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Interesting request, Right? Then he brought all these to him. Abram gets these things, brings them to God, and cut them in two, right down the middle, and placed each piece, yes, each half of the animal, opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. Birds are dead, not cut in two. What do you have here then? You've got a line, okay? So picture right here at the pulpit, going back to the sound booth, okay? You've got a three-year-old heifer, split open right there boom then next 
you've got a three-year-old female goat, then you've got a ram, and then the birds, okay? And rest assured, it is a bloody mess, okay? They weren't perforated. These aren't just little fake animals that you can just pop apart, okay? No, he cut them. What did he use to cut them? I don't entirely know. I don't think he had a DeWalt out there, right, to help him get through this. I mean, he, he had manual tools, and so he's got to take some time to cut these animals apart. Now, you may be sitting here thinking, this is a little odd. This whole line, okay, I was, I was with you. I was tracking it. God's saying, I promise, and this is, I'm good for this. And, 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 and Abram says, well, how will I know? And, and then God says, get all these animals and cut them in half. Okay, you lost me, <laughs> right? But here's what, here's what we learn and what we see here. We know that in, in just a few verses, in verse 18, it will say this, on the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying... You see, what's happening here in this moment is God is making a covenant. Abram is asked, how will I know? How will I know your promises are true? And God says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. So literally what God is saying here in, in verse 18 is on that day, and, and this, is the, this is the accurate Hebrew translation here, is on that day Yahweh cut a covenant with Abram. Anybody ever heard the term, let's cut a deal? There you go. Yahweh cut a covenant with Abram, which is an agreement. God's intention here is to enter into an agreement to cut a deal with Abram to say, you want to know? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a covenant with you. Okay? Now, what is this act intended to accomplish? As, as, as Abram's here looking for some sort of proof and God says, okay, this is how we're going to do this, what exactly is this interaction going to accomplish? Well, as these animals are cut in two, as I mentioned, they're split open. And the two agreeing parties, what they will do is they will stand in the midst of them. Now, it's debated as to how exactly this occurs, whether, as I described to you, the various animals are sort of lined up there, split apart, it's a bloody mess, and they're just going to stand in the middle, and they're going to lock arms, okay, like this, and they're going to shake on it, or they're going to do that, and they're going to walk through it. It's, it's, some people suggest that it happens either way. I think based off of what we'll see here in a moment is that you would walk through it. You'd go through the, the mess of it, if you will, and so there you are amongst the blood and the entrails, you're locking arms, you're shaking hands essentially, and you're saying this as you cut a covenant. If one of us breaks the covenant, this, the stuff we're standing in, is what's going to happen to the person who breaks it. Now that may sound a little extreme to us, right? We don't see that happening very often today. But we do see some other things that should make it sort of understandable. Anybody ever... You know, when you were young and you were in the clubhouse, maybe spit on your hand or cut your hand open and you, all right, we're, we're shaking on blood. Right? Anything? No? It was just, oh, okay, yes, there's a yes, okay. Maybe it was the freaky kids back in Kalamazoo, Michigan that did that, I suppose. <clears throat> Silly stuff like that, right? There, there's reasons why, these, why we have these things in our culture, why we, okay, so much more extreme in this moment, but that's what it's saying. And so God here is basically communicating to Abram, if, if I break the deal, this is what's going to happen to me. Now, God pulls all of this together, so though I'm kind of describing what's going to happen here, while, while God has initiated this, he has not yet entered into the agreement. What's happened at this point is that Abram has gotten the animals, he's split them apart, he's got them laid out, and now he's waiting on God. He's just prepared everything. So God is, in effect, saying, here's my promise. Abram's anticipating this, but now he's got to wait. And, and in this time, Abram, who has said, Lord, help me, help my unbelief, if you will, and God begins to demonstrate his faithfulness, but yet he, he has yet to formalize the agreement and so in this time then, Abram's just sort of waiting on God to enter into the agreement. And in this time now, and this is kind of a little, little gross, right? But the birds come, okay? Verse 11, And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And so this is very much, yes, you've got these big vultures coming down, in our area, we've got the turkey vultures. Some of you have seen them before. It's pretty nasty, right? And Abram's like, shoo, get out of here. Okay, this, it, that's what's going on here. It's very simple. But the thing we need to ask ourselves here as we look at this is, is this just narrative? Is this just some detail for us that the Holy Spirit saw fit to say and Abram chased off the birds? I don't think so. 
I think what we need to recognize that we often see in Scripture is that birds often symbolize evil. Birds often symbolize sort of an attack from the enemy. Consider the parable of the sower, right? The seeds that were sown and what happens for one of those examples. The birds come. They take away the seed right before it can take root. And I, and, I, and I do. I think as Abram's sitting here waiting, we know already what Abram has been struggling with a little bit. And so as he's sitting here waiting on the Lord to confirm this covenant, to enter into this agreement, I think things start to come in. And even in a short period of time, and you may be familiar with this in your own life, that God is moving, God is working, God is promising, God is showing himself faithful, but then it gets a little quiet for a period of time. And how quick do things start to come and go, oh, but you forgot about this. Oh, what about this? Maybe God's not really going to do this. Maybe God's not going to show up. But Abram, what he's doing in this time is he's, he's shooing off the birds, right? And, and I would submit to you that we need to do the same thing. We need to guard against the enemy bringing doubt into our minds, trying to rob us of the security that we can find in the promises of God. And so, you know, doubt enters in. And then what else is happening here is Abram, Abram's been through a lot. He's been through a lot emotionally. He's been through a lot physically. He's now in, his, in, in, in he's sort of in a down moment, uh, and tiredness, too, starts to come in. His weakness starts to show. And so you might think, oh boy, you know, Abram's going to blow it again as he starts to doze off. And it says in verse 12, now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. So Abram, he, he falls asleep, and as he falls asleep, he has a vision from the Lord. And so what this shows us, though, too, is that God's, God's not gone. God's not done with Abram. God is God's still working. And he says to Abram in verse 13, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years and also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What God is saying to Abram in this moment, in this vision, he's really adding now to the detail that Abram is, I think, kind of seeking. God, once again, in his grace, is willing to share with Abram, here's some of what is going to happen. And what he says then to Abram of his descendants is he's saying, look, there's going to be a period of time, 400 years to be exact, where they're going to be strangers in a foreign land. Your descendants are going to be, though he doesn't know it explicitly here, are going to be in Egypt. We know that because we can look back on history. Slaves in Egypt for 400 years. But there's going to come a time when they will leave, and they'll leave with great possessions. And we know that's exactly what happened on the timeline that God uh, tells here. And when they enter back into the land, because the Amorites, those who inhabit the Amorites is really another way to say the Canaanites, because they've been in the land this entire time that they were gone and yet have not sort of recognized, hey, this is your land and, and you guys serve the one true God. Well, because of that then, they will be judged as well. And so then you have the conquest of the land, that they come and they enter the land, Joshua, under Joshua's leadership, and they begin to um, drive out the enemy from the land. Now, that's sort of, in some respects here within the, within the context of this chapter, it's sort of a, a little cool detail that God gives to Abram. What's even more amazing is as this is happening, it, it, it's what's going on, rather, while this is happening. Because you see, Abram was waiting on God. He was waiting on God for what? To make the agreement. To enter in. To walk with him through the, through the animals. To, 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 to say, okay, we agree together. We're making an agreement, a covenant. The covenant that was intended to convey, my word is my bond. The promise that I'm making, I swear to it. But Abram, he can't stay awake. There's weakness here. The birds are coming in. His faith is growing weak again. And as he wakes, what does he see? You see, guys, we've got, we've got to see this here because this is what really seals the deal 
for us as we consider this covenant that God makes with Abram and the character of God that has already been demonstrated throughout the chapter here that's really just solidified in this moment is that in verse 17 it says, And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark that behold there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. This is what Abram is waking up to and he's seeing. And so as he awakens, what he finds is that the animals that he had cut in two where he was to stand in the midst of them with God and agree together, at this point, the animals are toast. A barbecue's happened, okay? And what, what he sees here is that God has come, and God walked in the midst of the animals, and he did it alone. God made the covenant. It's as if God was saying, I'll do it. I don't need you to agree. I'll swear to it on myself. There's a handful of covenants that we can pull out of Scripture, but there are four, I would say, four major covenants that are really important for us to consider within the Old Testament. At this point, this was essentially the second covenant that had been made. The first one was made with Noah. God made that covenant with Noah, and he also didn't require Noah to participate in that covenant. Now here, he's made a covenant with Abraham, or Abram. Later, God's going to make a covenant with the nation Israel, as they are there in the wilderness. And then he's going to make a covenant with King David. What do you suppose has has happened every time with each of these covenants? Man has broken them. Man's broken them every time. Now, with this as the context, with this as our understanding here, knowing way back when that this is what God did with Abraham, and then God continued to make covenants with his people, and, and his people continued to break those covenants. Now, think, if you will, about Jesus. Think, if you will, about the the promises that God is making, the the way God is challenging Abram to think, reminding Abram, remember who you are, remember who I am, remember that I am your shield, that I am your treasure, that here as they go, as Abram says, Lord, give me proof. How will I know? God God comes and he gives him more information, but then he says, but don't you even worry about it. Don't Don't you worry about entering into this covenant. I will do it. And so God comes and he walks in the midst of the animals that have been torn apart, essentially saying, if I'm not good to my word, may I be torn asunder. But knowing then that, in, that, that, that consistently because of man's wickedness we break these covenants and now, if you will, fast forward to a time where Jesus is seated at a table with his disciples gathered around that table and Jesus begins to look at his disciples and he said, I have longed for this moment. I've longed for this dinner to celebrate the Passover with you. And Jesus, he picks up the bread what does he do with the bread? He tears it apart. And he says, take, eat of it. And then he pours the cup of wine. And what does he say? As the bread is torn, which represents his body, he picks up the cup and he says, this is my blood. Of what? A new covenant. And we think back on Abram and we say, how will I know, Lord? How will I know? And when we find ourselves in that same place, we say, Lord, how do I know? And the Holy Spirit takes us back to Jesus saying, this is my blood, a new covenant. That's how we know. We know because the one and only Son of God, Jesus Christ, came to this earth. And listen, history books prove it. There's no one that doubts his existence. The events we read about in Scripture, the the Passover meal, it's not to be debated. The only part that people try to debate is whether or not He truly rose from the dead and was who he said he was. That's how we know. Because he came. And because then as he left, he said, it's good for me that I go so that the Holy Spirit, the Helper, can come. And so you know today, Christian, when you say, how do I know? You look back on that covenant and it's directed to us today to continue to celebrate that. That's why we do that. That's why we take of the, of the bread and of the juice to remember that covenant, to remember what he's done, and to remember also that the same spirit that raised him from the dead is within you. And you see that spirit at work. You look at who you once were and who you are now and you say, there's, there's no way there can't be a God because I'm changed, because I'm different because I see too many other people who are transformed radically. 
And his Holy Spirit comes upon you and empowers you and equips you. And so you do things, you function, you get through things, you go through trials or you minister to people and you do things that, that, that the rest of the world looks at and says that borders on the supernatural. And you say, because it is. Because it's not me, but it's his Spirit working in me and through me. And all along, it's God who has said, I'll do it. I'll do it. You don't have to. It's God who does it, and it's God who we can trust. And so we see there then in verse 18, and on the same day the Lord cut a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants I have given this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And he says all these different people, right? And we're thinking, boy, that's a lot of weird names. But you know what's so wonderful about God giving the specificity here to what he's giving to Abram is because Abram can know and we can know that this isn't just some spiritual promise, this this allegory. No, he's saying these are specific places. I'm giving you this. And so what God effectively says here is that I'm giving you from Egypt to Babylon, from the Nile River to the Euphrates. It's yours. 300,000 square miles. It's yours, Abram. And you know, it's interesting, Israel has never really fully inhabited it, perhaps a couple of times in history. Otherwise, the majority of the time, only a fraction of it. Some say only about 30,000 square miles of the 300,000 have they inhabited. And I believe that there will come a time when they fully inhabit it. When, you might ask, I'd say during the millennial reign. And I believe that's what it serves. That's its purpose. How do we know? Because he promised. Because he said he's a covenant God who swore on himself that he would keep his word. And friends, because of Jesus, this is a covenant for us as well. That in Matthew chapter 24, we'll be there in a few weeks, and what we see in Revelation, it tells us that, that though there are some, his disciples in particular, who will have a very specific role during some of this time, that we too as believers will be with him, ruling and reigning. That it's a covenant that we too can lay hold of as the author of Hebrews reminds us in Hebrews chapter 13 and verses 20 and 21, now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The question is, guys, do you believe that? Do you believe that he will do that work through you? We're called to believe. And if we don't go through the pattern of Abram, cry out. Allow him to do that work. Allow him to show up personally in your life and remind you of who he is and who he says you are. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for who you are. And Lord, might I say, perhaps many if not all agreeing with me, Lord, we're sorry for the ways in which, Lord, we so often doubt and struggle, allow circumstances, Lord, to shift our eyes away from you and to the things of this world. Lord, whatever it is, Lord, we repent of it. And we, like Abram, say, I believe in you, God. I trust in your promises. And sometimes, Lord, and we thank you for your grace and your mercy, we say, Lord, would you help me? Would you show me? And Lord, we ask that you and your kindness would direct our attention back to what it is that you, Jesus, accomplished for us. Remind us, Lord, of what it is that you've done. And not just back, but inward, Lord, to see and to remember that your Holy Spirit is at work within us, shaping us and molding us and sanctifying us, setting us apart. And Lord, like your word tells us to, shift our eyes forward as well, looking for you and your soon return. Keep our eyes fixed on those things, Lord, as we follow after you. Father, we love you, we praise you, we give you thanks, and Lord, we are trusting that you, Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, that through the blood of your everlasting covenant, that you, Lord, have made complete, that you would do that work in us, Lord. Finish what you started, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you would like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.